Good morning, and uh, welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. For those of you who don't know me, I'm David Malenka. I've been here for over 30 years, and I have hit the rule of 685. Uh, I'm a member of the section of uh, cardiology, uh, and I've done all my training here. It's a pleasure this morning to introduce Dr. Terrence Welch. Terrence is a graduate of the University of Notre Dame, Summa and Phi Bate. Went to Wash U, where he graduated AOA. Received his uh, medical training at the University of Washington with a little one-year diversion as an anesthesia resident. And then went to the Mayo Clinic, where he did his cardiology fellowship before joining our section in 2012. He's published a dozen or so articles and abstracts, and he is truly an expert in constrictive pericarditis, which is today's topic. He has written numerous papers on this, including a paper this year in circulation and for the American College of Cardiology. He has written the textbook chapters in the major echo texts um, o and Otto. So without doubt, he knows this topic matter. Uh, he's an excellent teacher. He's been here, what, three years? He's won four teaching awards. I've heard him give pieces of this lecture before, and I've never understood the physiology of constrictive pericarditis as well. So you're really in for a treat. You're going to learn something today that's usable, and uh, as the title indicates, constrictive pericarditis, if we think about it in diagnosis, is often a curable disease. So Terrence, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Appreciate that introduction, David. Everybody can hear me in the back, hopefully. Maybe that's better. So um, this is a little bit of a niche topic, I'll admit, for a cardiologist. Um, I've spent uh, the last few years uh, spending academic and clinical time with this particular disorder, in part related to some mentorship I had along the way while at the Mayo Clinic, which is a sort of bastion of pericardial disease management. Uh, but also I think it's a fascinating diagnosis, and it really harnesses everything we have in cardiology, the careful history and physical examination, a very careful sort of old-school hemodynamic assessment, whether it's with Doppler or invasive catheterization hemodynamics, and uh, you know some sort of in interesting treatments, some of which are medical and some, which, some of which require surgery. Um, it's also a diagnosis that's easily missed. These patients are hiding. They're hiding in your garden variety diastolic heart failure population, your idiopathic pleural effusion population, sometimes even your cirrhosis population. This is where these folks pop up. So they're not just coming to cardiology clinic. They're everywhere, and they can easily be missed. Uh, with that said, it's a diagnosis that you really don't want to miss because there's something we can do about it in general, particularly if we pick it up early enough. You can substantially impact or even cure this diagnosis in the right patient if you pick it up before it becomes too advanced. So I think it's important for all of us, and what I'm going to try to do in the next you know, 40, 45 minutes or so is tell you everything you need to know about this. And so here we go. I'll give you four quick uh, 
stems that could easily be your patient or a board question. So, and these are all patients that came in just the last year or so just to our clinic. So 46-year-old woman presents with progressive dyspnea, nausea, and edema. Her ALKFAS is elevated. There's ascites on imaging. She winds up getting a liver biopsy that essentially shows a congestive hepatopathy. An astute hepatologist notes an elevated jugular venous pressure and says, wait a minute. And the patient finds her way to cardiology clinic and has constriction. 55-year-old man with rheumatoid arthritis presents with progressive dyspnea on exertion. Transthoracic echo shows a uh, you know, sort of moderate circumferential effusion that gradually resolves with some anti-inflammatory medical therapy, but he's left with significant dyspnea. Nevertheless, jugular venous pressure elevation is noted. He has constriction. 50-year-old woman, past history of radiation for Hodgkin's, presents with progressive dyspnea. Also has a little bit of a pleural effusion, no tamponade, has a left pleural effusion. Fluid collections are drained, but she's still very short of breath. Elevated jugular venous pressure, she has constriction. 58-year-old man without prior medical history presents with progressive dyspnea and edema. Out of the blue. And a clinician notes elevated jugular venous pressure. He has constriction. So these are the types of patients you'll see, and you can usually see why they're not in cardiology clinic. They're in internal medicine clinics, pulmonary clinics, et cetera. And again, we've already hammered this home, but the diagnosis is really important to make because curative treatment may be possible. I put that in quotes because, of course, not everybody can be cured, and we'll talk about that. So these are our basic objectives. We'll start with sort of the definition of what constricted pericarditis is and a little background information. So, okay, what's the normal pericardium? Why is it there? There's an outer fibrous sac and there's an inner serous sac. The uh, inner serous sac is called the visceral pericardium. It lines the surface of the heart. It then extends up onto the proximal portions of the great vessels reflects back down around the heart again as the fibrous sac and then basically uh, the, the visceral pericardium is sitting on the inside of the fibrous sac and that's called the parietal pericardium. So you got the visceral pericardium on the heart and then you got the combined layer that's the parietal pericardium and in between the two is your potential space where fluid lives. Usually about 10 to 50 mils of fluid in a normal individual. Okay. Normally, the thickness of the entire pericardium, well, which is really the, the parietal pericardium that you can measure on imaging or, or anatomically, is less than two millimeters. So it's quite thin. This is what it looks like. So you can see here's the heart. Uh, the visceral pericardium will be lining this epicardial surface and then extending up onto the proximal portions of the great vessels, reflecting back to line the inside of the fibrous sac, which is the parietal pericardium there. Why do we have a pericardium? Well, nobody really knows. Uh, Dr. Spodek, who is a, a legend in pericardial disease, has proposed the following uh, potential benefits of a pericardium. Lubrication, a barrier against infection, maintains the heart in a stable position, prevents acute chamber distension, and also probably facilitates normal interaction between the ventricles and the other cardiac chambers. But we don't think it has any vital function because some people are born without a pericardium and they do just fine. It, if anything, it causes problems more than it helps you, right? So the pericardium, as you all know, can become inflamed or infected, can become scarred or calcified and cause problems. The pericardial space may also become filled with too much fluid or may become filled with something that shouldn't be there, like blood or tumor. Any of the above processes may obliterate the pericardial reserve volume and affect your cardiac filling. So normally, your pericardium is not strapped tightly to your heart. Your heart is actually able to expand with inspiration. 
there's a potential space there, a reserve volume built into the pericardium. But if the pericardium itself becomes diseased or if the pericardial space becomes overfilled, you lose that reserve volume and you're no longer able to fill your heart normally. And that's where the problems arise. So what I term compressive pericardial disease is really sort of a continuum. You have pericardial tamponade, which is where the pericardium is presumably okay and you have too much fluid. You have constricted pericarditis at the other extreme where the pericardium is very diseased. And then you've got stuff in between that we call effusive constrictive pericarditis. What's that? Well, that's where you have a constrictive pericardium, but you also have fluid. And when you take the fluid out, they still have constriction. These patients are somewhat unique in that you may have con uh, constriction from the parietal layer, but also from the visceral layer. So right along the surface of the heart, you're trapping it. So that's a sort of different uh, entity that requires a, a different kind of treatment, and we'll talk about that. So how do we define constricted pericarditis? Well, it's really a type of diastolic heart failure. So remember, it's in your differential diagnosis for the person with a normal EF who's presenting with volume overload, heart failure symptoms, et cetera. It causes restricted ventricular filling, not because the muscle is abnormal, but because the muscle is constrained by an abnormal pericardium. Usually the pericardium is inelastic and often thickened, uh, and typically, as I said, you have a normal ejection fraction, so it looks like systolic function is normal. And then you may have fluid in addition to the abnormal pericardial pathology, uh, particularly with the, what we call effusive constrictive disease, as I said. And again, the pathology, you may have fibrotic, calcific, scarred pericardium in the chronic cases, but you may also have subacute cases where the pericardium is actually inflamed, and those will become very important because you treat those differently. They may respond to medical therapy and get better with just medicine. So this is an example of uh, constricted pericarditis on autopsy. As, as opposed to the normal pericardium I showed you earlier, you can see that this thickened, scarred pericardium is essentially fused to the myocardium here and is going to prevent that myocardium from expanding normally during diastole. There's a lot of history to this disease. Uh, I think the pericardium has rightly fascinated people for a long time. Here's Dr. Spodek writing an interesting article uh, called The Hairy Hearts of Hoary Heroes, Medical History of the Pericardium. And uh, basically, he proposes that the hair that they talked about uh, on people's hearts as far back as Homer was actually fibrinous pericarditis. But in any case, this has mystified people for a long time. And it wasn't until the 1600s, though, that Richard Lauer uh, described the syndrome itself of, of constrictive pericarditis. There he is there. 1842, Dominic Corrigan describes the pericardial knock that we'll talk about. That's him. 1873, you have uh, our beloved Adolf Kussmaul, who describes uh, the elevated jug of the venous pressure, pulses pericardial and the Kussmaul sign. Uh, and then in 1929, the first pericardiectomy in the U.S. was performed at Mass General. So while it's been recognized for a long time, it's relatively recently that we've had a name for it and have had any kind of treatment for it, of course. So let's get into the etiology. Why do people get constrictive pericarditis? This probably sums it up pretty well. This is data from the Mayo Clinic. They probably have a higher volume of pericardiectomy than any other center Cleveland Clinic would be close. Um, and of the patients they took care of between 85 and 95, which is about 135, the, this was the breakdown. So majority idiopathic. We don't know why they got it, okay? 18% post-cardiac surgery. 16% developed it after a bout of acute pericarditis down the road. 13% after radiation therapy, typically 10, 20 years prior. 
And then there is a smattering of others, collagen vascular disease, infectious, malignancy, et cetera. This holds up pretty well when you compare these data to Cleveland Clinic, to Johns Hopkins, to a German center, et cetera. So most of Europe, uh, North America, more, quote, developed countries, this is the breakdown. However, we should remember that worldwide, and particularly in developing countries, far and away the more common diagnosis is tuberculous constricted pericarditis. Um, and here's an example of the granulomas you see on the surface of the heart when you're going in to take this uh, thickened disease pericardial layer off. We have no idea what the prevalence of this disease is. No data there. We really don't know what the incidence is either, except in one particular population, an Italian center was, was able to follow a large group of patients who had acute pericarditis out to about six or seven years, six years here, median follow-up of six years, and it seems to be fairly rare that you get constricted pericarditis after a bout of acute garden variety pericarditis. So 1.8% of cases is what they found here, but it can happen. So while a substantial portion of the patients who have constricted pericarditis got it after having acute pericarditis, it's very rare for that to happen. So epidemiology is limited here. How do these patients present? Well, we've touched on this a little bit. <laughs> Dyspnea on exertion is uh, far and away the most common presentation, 93% of patients. And then sort of a right greater than left-sided heart failure type of situation with an elevated JVP in almost everybody, very important to assess that. Edema in the majority, hepatomegaly in many, the pericardial knock that we'll talk about in about half. Many patients have ascites and as we said, may present with cirrhosis, cardiac cirrhosis. And actually, it's interesting, the Kussmaul sign and the pulsus paradoxus that receive a lot of attention are actually not always found, and there are complex reasons for that. Nevertheless, if you do find these, they're fairly specific for the diagnosis. This is what we're looking for. And this is uh, more for the students and the residents. This is why we spend time on every patient looking at the jugular venous pressure, so that we never miss this. This woman is sitting upright and has a jugular venous pressure up to her mandible, right? Some might look at that and say, well, that's just a carotid. Of course, it's not the carotid. It's biphasic. It's changing with respiration. So remarkably elevated jugular venous pressure in this woman who has constricted pericarditis. You can see the X and Y descents there if you look closely. <laughs> X, Y, X, Y, X, Y. What's he talking about? Why is he talking about X and Y descents? Well, let's, let's, let's review that. So <laughs> the A wave is the atrial contraction wave, right? So the pressure goes up in the jugular vein. The X descent is from atrial relaxation and downward motion of the tricuspid annulus during systole. Now there's a little C wave that gets inscribed on the X descent that we don't need to get into. That's from you know, bulging of the tricuspid valve during systole. You don't, you don't see that clinically. So A is atrial contraction. X descent is from atrial relaxation. We expect those to be fairly normal in constriction. Your V wave is your atrial filling wave. Now the atrium is filling during ventricular diastole, um, uh, sorry, during ventricular systole. And then the Y descent is after the tricuspid valve opens and the atrium is then able to empty, right? So the notable feature in constriction is that you have a preserved X descent and a steep, deep Y descent. And why is that? Well, the atrium is filling, it's filling at high pressure. When that tricuspid valve opens, all of a sudden, you have this rush of blood into the ventricle. That's the steep, deep, wide ascent. But, then all, but as soon as the ventricle expands to reach the limit of the pericardial um, constraint, you suddenly stop filling. So that's, and then all of a sudden, the pressure comes back up. So the pressure goes down, and then goes right back up. 
in the jugular venous pressure tracing. So that's, maybe that's a bit of a digression, but that's what we're looking for in the examination. So an elevated jugular venous pressure with a, a steep, deep, wide ascent is, a, is, is the classic finding. Now what about this pericardial knock? Well, this is an ECG up here, right? Here's a uh, phonocardiogram, which we don't use anymore here. This is S1, S2, and then there's this little sound in early diastole that you hear that corresponds to the nadir of the wide ascent, and that's called the pericardial knock. A little tricky to hear, low-frequency sound, happens a little sooner than your typical S3, but it's the sound of the rapid cessation of ventricular filling that's caused by the constricted pericardium. So a, a fairly specific feature if you hear it in a patient for constricted pericarditis, particularly when you see it in combination with an elevated jugular venous pressure. So that's the physical exam part of this. What about labs? Well, um, nothing extremely helpful other than that you know, it's good to know that the BNP in these patients who are presenting with volume overload tends to be lower uh, than the BNP and other causes of heart failure, particularly in idiopathic constriction. You can't take this home to the bank and use this as your, your pathognomonic feature by any, by any stretch, but it is helpful to know that the BNP tends to be lower. Now, if you happen to see a chest x-ray that has this much calcium on it, that's obviously extremely helpful. We don't see that very often anymore. So pericardial calcification on the chest x-ray, very helpful. Or if you happen to have a CT scan and you see a very thick pericardium, this is an axial slice, thick pericardium or calcified pericardium, that's helpful to know as well and can move you along the, the, the path of diagnosing the disorder. But we should remember that not everybody has to have a thick pericardium to have constricted pericarditis. In fact, in the Mayo series, uh, up to close to 20% of patients who had surgically confirmed constriction had a normal thickness pericardium. So a imaging study that tells you the pericardium is normal in thickness does not rule out constricted pericarditis. That's important to know. And then what's the differential diagnosis? Well, we already talked about some of the non-cardiac differential, including you know, cirrhosis and idiopathic pleural effusion, et cetera. But in cardiology, the classic contender is restrictive cardiomyopathy. They look identical clinically, and it's very difficult to tease these two apart, and that's what we'll talk about. Restrictive cardiomyopathy is very different, right? Constricted pericarditis is caused by a diseased pericardium with presumed preservation of normal myocardial function, whereas restrictive cardiomyopathy, the pericardium is not necessarily involved at all. It's the myocardium that is diseased. So they both restrict ventricular filling, but for very different reasons, right? And this is a classic example of a you know, mildly hypertrophied, small ventricular cavity type of heart with huge atria. It's a classic feature. Also, severe tricuspid regurgitation can look like constriction. Severe pulmonary hypertension can look like constriction. Or somebody who's had an RV infarction can look like constriction. So pathophysiology and diagnosis are really wrapped up together. To understand how we diagnose it, you have to understand the pathophysiology. So let's talk about that. This is the really fascinating part, I think. So the keys to diagnosis uh, were really put forward by these three people. This is Liv Hatley uh, out of uh, Norway, who basically developed Doppler echo back in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Uh, wrote the initial textbook on it, figured out these concepts that were then taken by J.O. and Rick Nishimura at the Mayo Clinic and uh, brought to the world in, in, in broader fashion. So dissociation of intrathoracic and intracardiac pressure is one key concept, and we'll talk about that. And then exaggerated left ventricular and right ventricular interaction. And before we start on this, just imagine that in constriction, your heart is trapped inside a relatively small insulated box or bag. 
And that helps understand these next slides. So normally, I'm going to orient you here. So you have your pulmonary venous pressure here, this line, and then your intracardiac pressure here, this line. So when you take a breath in, you drop, and then this is, of course, your intrathoracic pressure down here. When you take a breath in, you drop your intrathoracic pressure, and you drop all of your pressures, and you drop them relatively equally. That negative intrathoracic pressure gets communicated to the pulmonary veins and the cardiac chambers essentially equally so that your gradient to fill, which is shaded in orange here, is preserved. So you don't really drop your left-sided filling very much when you take a breath in. There is a little change, but not very much, okay? So you take a breath in, you exhale, and your, your filling of your left side of your heart stays relatively consistent in health. This is very different in constriction when you have the pericardium uh, uh, trapping the left side of the heart, insulating the left side of the heart. Now, you take a breath in, you drop your intrathoracic pressure, your pulmonary veins, which are outside the pericardium, still drop their pressure, but the intracardiac pressure doesn't change as much because it's, quote, insulated from that intrathoracic pressure change. So now all of a sudden you've changed your gradient that was this down to this minimal thing, and you drop your filling of the left side of your heart. So you take a breath in, and you actually don't fill your left atrium or left ventricle as well as you did before. And then the opposite happens during exhalation when the whole thing reverses itself. So it's a phasic change in left-sided filling that is sort of pathognomonic for this disorder. You also have competition for space between the two ventricles. So when you take a breath in, normally your heart actually expands in size. That's been shown by MRI. But if you trap, if you fix the size and you take a breath in and the right-sided filling increases, the only thing that can happen to accommodate that filling is for the septum to shift to the left. So the right side fills at the expense of the left, and then the whole thing switches in exhalation. So again, phasic change in the right and left-sided filling of the heart is how we diagnose this. And that is also what underlies what you check on examination, which is the pulsus paradoxus, which is, almo which is almost always present in tamponade. By the way, all of this is very similar to what happens in tamponade and is oftentimes present in constriction. So that during exhalation, this just shows that now you're once again restoring left ventricular filling, pushing your septum to the right, so the left ventricle is filling at the expense of the right. It's just a back and forth thing. This is a video that shows you this. So now your lungs are expanding, you're dropping your left-sided flow, your septum shifts, and you increase right-sided filling. Now you're exhaling, you're increasing your left-sided flow, shifting your septum to the right, and decreasing your right-sided filling. I'll let this play just for a minute here so you kind of get the sense. Again, the key concept just being not the minutia here, but rather phasic change in left and right-sided filling. And then, of course, as constriction progresses, it's no longer just affecting, you know, left-sided filling during diastole. It starts to affect both sides all the time when it gets very severe. So inspiration favors the right side. Exhalation favors the left side. And so as a reminder, a comprehensive echo is recommended by any type of guideline or appropriate use criterion for all patients presenting with heart failure. So it provides us with a critical opportunity to evaluate for this diagnosis. I'm going to just focus on a few basic points that we look for on the echocardiogram. We're not trying to make this into an echo talk. But the first is that we look for that shift 
in the position of the septum during the respiratory cycle that I was just showing you. So here's an example of a four-chamber view of the heart with the left ventricle here, the right ventricle here, left atrium here, right atrium here. This is the ventricular septum. And I'll just have you watch that septum move. Oop, it shifted, came back. It's gonna, there's going to be a more pronounced one there. Look at the sizes of the right versus the left side, right, right versus left ventricle. And see how it changes during the respiratory cycle. Now, we'll only see this if we do a long clip like this. And so part of the issue here is that if we're not looking for it, we could easily fly right by it, even on the echo. Now, our sonographers are very good, and they've gotten to the point where they can be watching it live and say, well, wait a minute, okay, this wasn't referred as a constrictive pericarditis echo, but I'm seeing some septal changes I don't like, and they'll turn it into a constriction echo. But it's always helpful to know a priori that, hey, this is in the differential, and the referring MD wants a constrictive pericarditis type of echo, because it is different than a regular echocardiogram. And you can easily miss constriction on a regular echocardiogram. So just because you see an echo that doesn't mention anything about constriction does not mean constriction is not present. Only if they say, we looked for constriction and it was not there, should you, should you deduce that it's not there. All right, and this is an M mode that shows you the same thing. So what this does is it, it's like an ice pick through the heart, right? Very high temporal resolution. This is the septum, and this is a long sweep. And you can see that the septum is changing in terms of its position back and forth, back and forth, back and forth throughout the respiratory cycle. And, and therefore, the left and the right ventricles are changing in terms of their size throughout the respiratory cycle. So it's just showing you exactly what we were talking about. As opposed to restriction down here, where you don't see that. You don't see that phasic movement of the ventricular septum. You shouldn't have the ventricular interdependence or enhanced ventricular interaction that we were talking about. And then we see respiration-related variation in Doppler velocities, too. So with, with this, what we're doing is we're bouncing sound waves off red blood cells and looking at the velocity of the red blood cells in the heart. And what we're seeing is that during inspiration here, you have a lower velocity through the mitral valve than you do during expiration. So again, just the same thing again, another way of looking at it, maybe even a more sensitive way to look at it, as opposed to restriction where we really have a more flat profile in the mitral inflow velocity. And we don't need to get too much into this, but we can even go way back into the hepatic veins and see interesting phenomena like reversal of flow at the end of diastole during expiration. Again, all related to that competition between the right and left sides of the heart. And finally, uh, the other key concept on the echo is that there are unique myocardial relaxation properties in this disorder that we can pick up on echo. So now we're talking about tissue Doppler, and this is this E-prime stuff you see in our reports. What is that? Well, now we're not bouncing sound waves off red blood cells. We're bouncing sound waves off tissue in the heart. So these are lower velocity signals. But we're actually looking to see what velocity the mitral annulus has during diastole. And it actually has a velocity. There are, there are separate relaxation velocities of the mitral annulus during diastole. And here they are. There's an E prime velocity and an A prime velocity. But before we get into that, let's look at the, the old sound waves off blood cells again, the classic E and A wave. So normally, your early diastolic filling through the mitral valve, E wave, is bigger than your A wave, which, which is your atrial kick, right? When you have impaired relaxation of the heart, 
the E-way becomes more diminutive and the atrial kick becomes more important. These are people with impaired relaxation, E less than A. And then as heart failure progresses and left atrial pressure rises, you have an E wave that once again becomes higher than the A wave. And so the old problem was we couldn't tell whether E greater than A was normal or abnormal. And so we got into you know, pulmonary veins and all these other complicated things on the echo in terms of the diastolic function. And then E prime tissue Doppler came around and that really helped us because now we could look at the E prime relaxation velocity of the mitral annulus and if that is normal and the E is greater than A, then we feel pretty good about saying the diastolic function is okay and that the filling pressure is okay. Whereas if the E prime is low, that means that the, the myocardium is sick. It's not relaxing normally. And so the E greater than A is abnormal. In other words, you can be a sucker or a pusher is, is, is the classic way to think about this. Normal people are suckers in terms of the ventricle really sucks blood in an early diastole, leading to that high E-prime velocity. Whereas if you're a pusher, it means you have heart failure and the left atrium is actually pushing blood through the mitral valve with high pressure. So the E-prime helped us figure out whether you're a sucker or a pusher. And that led people to call it this, which is the Rosetta Stone, uh, in an abundance of enthusiasm, some, some echocardiographers thought that E-prime might be like the Rosetta Stone. Well, we don't need to get into that, but in any case, it was very helpful. Um, <clears throat> but it's really helpful for constricted pericarditis. So that, that whole last bit was just a digression to introduce E-prime to you. So now look here, this yellow thing in the middle of the heart is what we're, what we're talking about. This is the medial mitral annulus, and our tissue Doppler is measuring the velocity of this in diastole. This is normal. This is people, this is representative of a patient with heart failure of almost any other cause aside from constriction, right? They have low E prime velocity. They have a sick myocardium. What's a normal E prime velocity? About eight centimeters a second. So they're gonna be down in the six, four, three centimeter per second range. But look at this patient with constriction. This is what happens in classic constriction, is you, you have a preserved or even exuberant medial E prime velocity. Again, because the myocardium isn't sick, it's the pericardium. And what happens is that the lateral borders of the heart get trapped to some extent by the constricted pericardium and the medial annulus tries to compensate presumably by becoming overly exuberant in terms of its velocity. So we can look at this velocity and if a patient has heart failure and has a high E prime velocity, that's almost pathognomonic for constriction. It shouldn't be the case for restriction, for even valve disease, for other types of heart failure, systolic heart failure, restrictive cardiomyopathy. So E prime became a very important part of this workup. And so these are the little squiggly things that we're measuring. So here we got a 15 centimeters a second. Here we have a, I think, an eight or nine centimeters a second. And here's a restrictive cardiomyopathy, four centimeters a second. So much lower in most of your restriction and other heart failure type cases. So that's the other key piece we're looking for on the echo. And so what we did is we took all of these things and, and tried to come up with a set of criteria that you could use to diagnose constriction based on the echo. Um, and so this was called the echo diagnosis of constricted pericarditis, Mayo Clinic criteria. I, I, I kind of floated this idea to the group, um, but th they weren't as enthusiastic about it, so we went with the Mayo Clinic. But anyway, um, so 130 patients with constriction, surgically confirmed, and we compared them with 36 patients without constriction who ended up having restriction. But we're all thought to possibly have constriction and had the whole workup. And uh, so we went through them all in blinded fashion, and we focused on these key echo findings that we talked about. 
And basically, we won't go through this in detail, but we found a, a significant difference between the two groups in all of these criteria <laughs> we're talking about. And we went through the test performance characteristics of each one of them and did multivariable analysis. And the three that really seem to be the best are essentially the ones I just showed you. So the ventricular septal shift, this medially prime velocity, and then the hepatic vein stuff that I, I mentioned in passing, the, the, the respiratory changes in the hepatic vein. And if you have the septal shift plus either of these other two, in this, in this series, it was about a 90%, 90% sensitivity specificity. So we can do a pretty good job on echo making this diagnosis. Now, there are, of course, cases where we don't have those factors. We, 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 can't, we only have one of them. And so we can't tell you it's definitely constriction, but we can suggest it still. So that's how the echo works. So echo can make or at least suggest the diagnosis in most cases as a take-home point. But it's got to be a constriction protocol echo. A, a regular old echo will often miss it, okay? So if you suspect it, please let us know. But there are cases where it's not enough, right? You're not sure about the echo. Uh, maybe, maybe you have the septal shift, but the E prime is not high, and it just doesn't all fit together. And you need to go to invasive hemodynamics, which would still be, I think, considered the gold standard for this diagnosis. So if you open a, a, an older textbook on this subject, uh, constriction versus restriction cath criteria, you're going to see these difficult to remember uh, things here like uh, LVEDP minus RVEDP greater than or less than 5, um, RV pressure systolic less than or greater than 50, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out that if you look at these, uh, there's a lot of overlap between the groups constrictive pericarditis and restrictive cardiomyopathy, a lot of overlap. So they're, they're, they're helpful to look at, but they're really not all that diagnostic. And what is better is to look at those same two things that we talked about already in terms of the echo, the dissociation of intrathoracic and intracardiac pressure and exaggerated left ventricular and right ventricular interaction. Same thing. So a little hard for me to see. I'm going to step over here. We've got a left ventricular pressure tracing here, up and down, up and down. And then you have a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure tracing here. And what, what, what this is showing you is that in inspiration, the gradient between the two, the space between the two, the shaded area, is quite minimal. And that's because of that drop in left-sided flow. Whereas in expiration, you have a much greater shaded area between the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure and the LV pressure. And so there's going to be more filling. So phasic separation of those curves reflecting phasic filling of the left side of the heart. So that's one thing. Uh, but the even better uh, uh, criterion here is this discordant change in the area under the curve for the systolic pressure tracings between the LV now and RV. And so the LV is shaded in yellow and the RV is shaded in orange. And what you see is that in inspiration, the RV changes a bit for the positive, and the LV changes some for the negative. So there's a discordant change in the area under the curve for the LV and the RV, as opposed to restriction where you have essentially concordant change. They both decrease in inspiration a bit, go back up a little bit with uh, expiration. Sometimes even that is difficult to make the diagnosis on, though. And so you say, well, I want something more. I want some cross-sectional imaging, which has become very important and helpful in this, in this diagnosis as well. Cardiac CT, we already showed you this picture, but uh, pericardial thickening or pericardial calcification, certainly helpful to see. Sometimes you'll see cardiac or ventricular deformation, the banana sign, they call it, on the CT, so that can be helpful. 
MRI offers a lot of advantages because it can look for some of the same things we see on echo in terms of that septal shift. If they do free breathing sequences, they can look to see how adherent the pericardium is on the, uh, on the surface of the heart. But most importantly, perhaps, they can look for delayed pericardial enhancement, which reflects abnormal pericardial pathology, reflects edema and inflammation of the pericardium. And if that's present, so, so look here, you see this white line around the heart in all of these views. That pericardium has a lot of delayed gadolinium enhancement and is inflamed. And this can dramatically affect how you approach the patient, how you treat the patient. So an MRI has become fairly customary to do in almost everybody to help guide management, and we'll talk about that next. So the natural history and treatment are bundled together here. The natural history of constrictive pericarditis is pretty dismal. So, I mean, it's progressive debilitation and refractory heart failure and early death, except when it's transient. And so how do you make it transient? Well, this was first brought to light uh, back in 04 when they were looking through their patients, and out of 212 patients with constriction at Mayo, they found that 36 of them seemed to get better on their own. They didn't end up needing a pericardiectomy. And these were the etiologies for these patients. Post-pericardiotomy syndrome, you know, idiopathic viral pericarditis, some collagen vascular disease, very few with trauma, malignancy, or tuberculosis, and importantly, none had radiation-induced constriction. That doesn't get better. These patients were in an acute phase of illness. Most were treated with anti-inflammatory therapies, and we'll talk about that. And the median time to recovery was about two months. So it seemed possible that constriction could get better. There was a subsequent study that came out in 2011 where they tried to, to sort out how you determine who might get better and who might respond to anti-inflammatory treatment. So here, this was an MRI study basically, uh, 288 patients referred for pericardial disease type of MRI. Constriction was, was found in 89 of these patients. And of those 89, 29 received medical treatment and they found that about half got better and half didn't get better. And then they looked to see what were the, the factors that seemed to influence who got better and who didn't get better with anti-inflammatory treatment. And it was quite clear that the amount of delayed gadolinium enhancement you had was greater in the group that got better with anti-inflammatory therapy, which makes sense, as opposed to the group that didn't get better with anti-inflammatory therapy. But if you can't get an MRI, it seems the CRP works pretty well too. So if you got a real high CRP, you probably are going to get better with anti-inflammatory therapy, whereas if you don't, you're probably not going to. So that's uh, you know, the, the other surrogate marker that we often use if we, for some reason, don't want to do an MRI or can't get an MRI. Again, this study also confirmed that none of the patients with radiation-induced constriction got better with anti-inflammatory therapy, which I suppose is not surprising. And here's just one particular case that they showed. So here's the delayed gadolinium enhancement at the beginning, and now it's resolved after treatment. And the CRP went from 59 to 2. So medical treatment for pericarditis has changed in the last 10 years. We now know that in many cases, or some cases I should say, you can make the, 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 the process much better or even cure it. So if there's evidence for inflammation on the basis of an MRI or a CRP, it's very reasonable and, in fact, appropriate to try anti-inflammatory therapies for about two to three months and follow your CRPs, follow the patient closely, et cetera. 
So what do you, what do you give the patient? No, nobody really knows. This is not well sorted out, okay? Um, I would typically start with a high-dose NSAID plus colchicine, and we'll talk about that. But there are places that will use prednisone right off the bat. Prednisone right off the bat for acute pericarditis is clearly out. We don't like to do that. There's good data for that, possibly increasing viral replication, increasing recurrence rates, causing other side effects. So we don't use it for plain old acute pericarditis. We do use an NSAID plus colchicine for all cases of pericarditis now, acute pericarditis, unless there's a contraindication. And that's based on the ICAP trial that came out two years ago in the New England Journal, where they randomized people to an NSAID versus NSAID plus colchicine and found a clear improvement in how fast you got better from your acute pericarditis and a clear improvement in recurrence rates. So a lot of us extrapolate this data to the, cons the inflammatory constriction realm, but we don't really know. There's never been a randomized controlled trial of anti-inflammatory therapies in constrictive pericarditis. Anecdotally, I've seen people get better on this combination of an NSAID and colchicine. But if there's any doubt about it or if they're not getting better, I think switching to prednisone makes a lot of sense. So an anti-inflammatory uh, regimen is the way to go, and this may be curative. Now, if the constriction is due to a specific etiology, of course, you need to treat that etiology medically and appropriately. So if it's tuberculosis, you treat the tuberculosis. If it's another infection, you treat the infection. If it's a malignancy, you may elect to treat the malignancy. That goes without saying. So that's another component of medical therapy, of course. And then if the constriction is chronic constriction, not the inflammatory, potentially transient kind, you're really stuck with supportive therapy, okay, which is diuretic therapy, really. Or if, you know, so this may improve the patient's symptoms while awaiting surgery or maybe the only option in patients who are, are too high risk for surgery. So in the majority of cases, though, constriction appears to be chronic and irreversible, and that's when you really have to think about surgery. And what's surgery? Surgery is a radical pericardiectomy which involves taking off all pieces of the pericardium, all possible pieces of the pericardium. Here's an example of what might be taken off in a surgery. Um, and typically any constricting epicardium or, or layer right along on the surface of the heart too. Now, that part in particular is painstaking, very difficult to do. So um, this surgery can be more straightforward if it's just the parietal pericardium you're taking off. It can be much more challenging if the, you know, the whole thing is fused to the surface of the heart and you're having to pry and scrape things off the surface, as you can imagine. Challenging procedure. Uh, the, the, the studies that are out there would, would estimate about a 6% mortality from the procedure itself. And you know, this, is, this may not project that well, but this is an example of taking that surface right off the visceral layer of the heart. Very difficult. They're, they're kind of getting under it with uh, forceps here and uh, challenging, challenging procedure. But may be curative, right? So if you're able to get the constricting pericardium off, it can be curative. Not always, though. So what are the outcomes like? There's wide variation in the outcomes after pericardiectomy, and it depends on the etiology as well as other factors, okay? So the best survival appears to be present for patients with idiopathic constriction, up to 88% at seven years. Best survival for younger patients with less severe heart failure. You want to get them before they're into stage four New York Heart Association class four heart failure. And it's best for patients who have not had radiation. The results are pretty dismal for radiation-induced constriction. Why is that? Well, of course, the radiation is not going to hit the pericardium and spare everything else. It's going to hit everything. 
particularly the, the radiation that was done in decades past. So you're going to have myopathic disease, you'll have coronary disease, you'll have valve disease, um, you know, the, the whole kit and caboodle, you get lung disease. So you're not fixing the entire problem by taking the pericardium off in a radiation-induced constrictive case. So this is um, not the prettiest graph here, but this is the Cleveland Clinic experience. So you can see uh, survival's on the y-axis and years after pericardiectomy out to 15 is on the x-axis. You can see idiopathic constriction after pericardiectomy enjoys a very favorable prognosis, okay? Miscellaneous, post-surgical, post-radiation. Nobody was alive after six, seven years. This is the Mayo Clinic experience. So again, significant discrepancy in outcomes based on age, New York Heart Association class, and whether you had radiation. So if you're younger, you do much better than if you're older, and they used 55 for whatever it's worth as their cutoff. You do better if you have New York Heart Association 1 to 3 symptoms versus New York Heart Association 4 symptoms, dramatically so. And you do better if you haven't had radiation versus if you've had radiation. So a pretty wide spectrum of results depending on who the patient is, why he or she has constriction, and how sick he or she is at the time that you're getting. Which goes back to what I said at the beginning is that we really want to catch these folks early. And of those patients who made it to long-term survival out to 8 to 10 years, the, the encouraging thing is that not, not only were they alive, they had minimal symptoms. They felt good. So this did help them. It didn't just keep them alive and sick and going in and out of the hospital. Most of them were asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. So when you suspect, we'll conclude here, when you suspect constrictive pericarditis, a reasonable algorithm is the following. Start with your clinical exam and your history, of course, uh, and then an echocardiogram, and specify that you want to know whether this patient has signs of constriction if your echo is diagnostic, you feel really good about it being constriction, consider an MRI or at least a CRP. And if there's evidence for inflammation, go ahead and observe and, and treat with medical therapy, anti-inflammatory therapy. If the MRI and or CRP are not supportive of inflammation, then you need to consider complete surgical pericardiectomy. If the echo was non-diagnostic, then you need to go to a cath and or CT MRI to get more information to know for sure what you're dealing with. And if that's diagnostic, well then sure, go to a pericardiectomy. But if that's not diagnostic, well then you're stuck with observation or even exploratory surgery, which we don't do very often. So in summary, we want to think of constriction, keep it into differential diagnosis, it's hiding. The echo may be diagnostic. We want to use our invasive hemodynamics and MRI as needed to confirm the diagnosis. And we, we want to remember that it's a treatable form of heart failure that could get dramatically better or even be cured. We want to distinguish between transient and chronic constriction and use anti-inflammatory uh, therapies appropriately. Um, so back to our first four patients, the, the, the woman who had the cirrhosis, she was referred for pericardiectomy and experienced significant improvement in her dyspnea as a result of it. She was fairly advanced on, at diagnosis, though. She, she has not normalized. Um, the second patient uh, with the rheumatoid arthritis responded to augmentation of his rheumatoid arthritis therapy. So he went on prednisone and then was also on other immuno immunomodulators, and his constriction resolved. Uh, the third patient who had the... Uh, 
um, the effusion that was drained around her heart and in her lung, uh, she was treated with colchicine and high-dose indomethacin and resolved completely in terms of her constriction. And the fourth patient has chronic constriction, the one who had no prior medical history, and he's uh, in discussion uh, in terms of whether he wants to have a pericardiectomy. So that's just a smattering of, of recent cases. So I thank you for your attention, and uh, hopefully this was helpful. Oh, yeah. Really, as promised, Dr. Malenka uh, didn't overstate things. Um, we have lots of time for questions. Sure. So, questions? Anybody? Yeah. Is electrical alternating seen, or is that only with tamponade? I've only seen it with tamponade. Um, I, I suppose it's possible, but that, that it's, it's classic with tamponade because of the swinging motion of the heart uh, in, in, in the pericardial sac. Yes. Thank you. That was such a great talk. Um, I'm curious, we had a lovely medical grandma, I'm sorry, recently by Dr. Stone about IgG4 disease. Is there any intersection with the idiopathic pericarditis with this new form of fibrosing disease? I don't know the answer to that question. I'll, I'll look into that. I think the yeah. interest is that there's you know, potentially treatment for that. In the Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Now you showed that the prognosis with radiation therapy is poorer than the other forms of pericarditis. Is that possibly due to some uh, radiation-induced restrictive cardiomyopathy in addition to constrictive pericarditis? Yes, that's the thought, is that you, you have concomitant myocardial disease and, and, and even, you know, coronary valvular lung disease along with your constriction, so you're only fixing one part of the problem. Yeah. Many surgeons will not offer the operation. A follow-up question to that. So it seems like the picture you painted for post-radiation patients is pretty grim. And is there anything that we can do um, to improve their outcomes if we if we identify the problem sooner? Are medical therapies more helpful? In the patients who had radiation um, via the older approach, no, not that we know of. We can use supportive therapies, but what's really been done already by the radiation community is they have been better able to, and I'm not an expert in this, target their radiation in, in, in a smaller space so that there's less collateral damage. So the, the least amount and the most focused radiation is the mantra. And so the, the hope is that in the decades to come, we're going to see less of this than we do now, because the classic story now um, that we see is, is uh, oftentimes a woman who had Hodgkin's lymphoma in her 20s, got radiation, about 20 years later got breast cancer, got treated for the breast cancer, and then about 10 years later she gets constricted pericarditis, and it's a sad case that we see you know, time and time again, and you really don't have many options to, to treat these folks. No. Other questions? Thank you. Thank you so much.